Um, Pray with me, would you please? Lord, we know that in this world there are several things that are viewed as Christian. And Lord, um, it is such a carnal, ungodly approach to just simply uh, make, uh, make everything that's different from us just make it anathema to kind of cast it out and have nothing to do with it. And, and, and God, I can't tell um, who has made that confession or not because of their practices. But Lord, I don't want it to cloud up my heart to see every person come to know your Son as Lord and Savior. And so I pray tonight for this council of people that will be sitting together soon trying to figure out who is going to take that seat. And regardless of the doctrines we could clearly disagree with that we could call unscriptural or anti-biblical, that people can embrace in various different places, I do believe that it is your desire that the one point whatever billion people that may claim to be Catholic would know your Son, Jesus Christ. They would know the power of His forgiveness, the power of His resurrection, the beauty of His, His purity, that they would know the revolution of making Him Savior and Lord. Now, there may be many who are already within that field. If there be even one man that's wearing a pointy hat, that's in his candidacy, that genuinely loves you, that wants your kingdom come, your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. That wants to decrease that you would increase. That would want to go into all the world and to preach the gospel to every creature. That would want to make disciples of you, Jesus. Not of a denomination or an affiliation or a bend but to make them disciples, students of Jesus Christ. If there be one man among them, bring him to the plate, I pray. Bring him to the seat that you would create a revolution among Rome, among the places steeped in Catholicism, the places where this man could have the influence. And God with that, that he would not be an encumbrance and a replacement of you, but that he would be the vehicle you would intend for him to be to lead others to you. We pray, Lord, for those in any orthodoxy. And while we're at it, we we pray for the, the church here in England and in Scotland, and in Ireland, for those that are making decisions, for those that their decisions will affect 
myriads of others, even those in leadership in other places, that God tonight, you would be speaking to them perfectly and profoundly, that your Holy Spirit would win, would conquer minds and hearts and ambitions and wills. Oh God, that you would save this country, that you would save the world. And God, here in this room, we who claim to know you, who claim hold of your word, that don't look to a man per se, but to, but to your Son, fully God and fully man, the perfect sacrifice, and have surrendered at least in mouth to his Lordship, Grab the defibrillators, God, and shock us out of any apathy, any indifference, any numbness to worldliness, any irreverence to what's supposed to be holy. God, anything that that makes us just apathetic to a world going to hell around us. We don't want to be overwhelmed by anything or anyone but You. But in that, let our hearts be properly broken. Let our minds be properly geared. And let our lives be properly spent. So here in this room, as we open Your Word, we commit it to You. We lift up our dear sister Amina. We pray you'd be her comfort. We lift up Landon and Rachel. We pray you would be their direction. And we pray that you would make every one of us more than we could dream being in you. And let tonight be that milestone to begin it. In Jesus' name. Amen. Grab a Bible, please. Come on forward if you could. Let's dig into the Word. But try not to move too fast because I don't want you to, like, your movement to bring the cold air up forward. chapter 27, for the sake of of, uh, context, beginning in verse 20. Now when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, no small tempest beat on us. Don't you just love the New King James or King James. It just sounds so polite. Oh, this is no small tempest. You know, if it was American, it'd be like this gigantic star. All hope that we would be saved was finally given up. But after long abstinence from food, 
Paul stood in the midst of them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. Verse 22. And And now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I serve, saying, Don't be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar. And indeed, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Let's start there. In verses 23 and 24, where we pick it up tonight, we read that an angel of God stood before Paul. More than two years ago, in Acts 23.11, Jesus stood before a horribly beaten, a bewildered, aching, broken-hearted Paul who had just shared his testimony with a group of Jewish people at the temple who attempted to beat him to death. Understand, we're not talking about simply people making fun of you, mocking or heckling and walking away. We are talking about people literally trying to kill you. They are trying to kill you because you are testifying that Jesus loves people that aren't Jewish. Paul is spending a night in a cell there at the Antonio Fortress. And the following night, in Acts 23.11, Jesus The Lord stood by Paul and he said, Cheer up. As you've testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness in Rome. But that was two years ago. And I don't know how many of you here embrace a promise the Lord has laid before you. Where at that moment and for much time after, it was so clear nobody could convince you otherwise. You were sure. But time has passed. And those memories get a little bit more fuzzy. They dim a little. And then circumstances arise that there is no part of your logical mind that could possibly reconcile your circumstances with that promise. Here we are. It will ultimately be two weeks. We've been barfing. We've been tossed back and forth on the ship. We've given up hope. We are convinced we are going to die. And it's interesting because the term here is we... That's where it was. I kind of get the idea. The writer of this, Luke, was one of those people. 
Perhaps even Paul was one of those people. I mean, we want to make Paul the superhero of our faith, but we tend to make him inhuman to do that. I mean, even guys who are writing Scripture suffer with challenges to their faith. Because it says, back in verse 20, all hope that we would be saved was finally given up. But somewhere about that point, an angel shows up. Now, I want to remind you, an angel is simply a messenger. God has a habit. He's got all of these angelic beings at his disposal. But he also has you as a messenger as well. Don't forget that as we move on. But before I go any farther, let me remind you, Jesus, what Jesus said was is that you are going to now then be testimony in Rome. Please hear me, friends, because I'm here to set you free from bondage you're about to put, that you've put yourself into. I'm here to challenge your paradigm. But for me to do that, friends, please hear me. Don't believe me just because I say it. Search the scriptures. Hold me accountable to everything I say. And if me, then everyone. I wouldn't want you to do that to me and not to anyone else. Here's my challenge. Many of us are familiar. Many of us are familiar in the book of Acts chapter 1 that Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would come upon these people that were there, 120 of them praying. And he said then, 1-9, that when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you will be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, all Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And we kind of know as Christians that there is that responsibility to go out, and we'll use the term, go out witnessing, which is a really interesting term, because to witness means you have to experience something so you can testify about it later. It's interesting. What we really should be doing is going out testifying in that sense. But I'm going to go out witness, which is kind of funny if you think about it. If we're going out witnessing, we're all going to go out and watch something. So we can talk to each other later and say, guess what I witnessed? I witnessed the Super Bowl, the American Championship foot for football. I witnessed it. But I didn't witness to it. The word in the Greek, and some of us are familiar with it, is the word materias, from which we get the word martyr. So when naturally we assume, and this is where the, 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 the problem comes, is we're freaked out and scared to death because we feel like our one job is to force ourselves into a situation so we can then tell people about Jesus in an awkward and forceful fashion. And we've gotten so far from that, which by the way, that's partly true, well, we've gotten so far from that. Now, it's like preach or negative. Have you learned that within the church, right? It's like, I'm not going to preach at you. And I've talked to a, a brother a couple days ago. And it's like, we don't force Jesus on people. I'm like, I'd rather you force Jesus on people than not give people a choice. But hear me out. The word materias, in its base sense, literally means evidence. Now, Evidence is going to speak even when it doesn't talk. But often evidence will speak. Every person called to the stand will have to speak. Or will they? There is evidence that is given because of its existence 
There's evidence in its behavior. And there is evidence in your speech. Case in point, Annie seems like such a gentle, loving young lady. Well, we won't use her because we don't want to pick on someone. So let's just say, Wanny. <laughs> Wanny is, has been arrested for the murder of Weeder. Surprised everybody. All of the things that are brought to testify, not every part of that will be human or verbal. There will be a bloody knife. There will be blood on a carpet or photos or whatever of that blood on the carpet. Those things, can we agree, are still evidence. And in all of those things, they testify by their position, by what that what's on them, those things are important. Then, for instance, Katya will be brought to stand and she'll say, well, I saw this or I didn't see that. Now, she is testifying as well, but she's testifying verbally. Are you with me on this? Now, if I were Wanny's defense attorney, there is evidence I could bring that's called prima facie evidence. Prima facie evidence means evidence that by its existence testifies. If I wanted to shut down the case and defend my precious hypothetical sister, Wanny, the best thing I could do is bring in a living weeder. Does that make sense? Because if he comes in living, he couldn't have been murdered. Case closed. Are you with me on that? Here's my challenge to you. What if, instead of just simply praying, God, make me a witness, you said, God, make my entire life evidence. Evidence. All of a sudden, things change. Because what happens is, if I feel like my only job is to tell you stuff, my focus will be on that so much that if I don't speak, I will beat myself up at night and say, I don't even know if I'm saved. How could I call myself a Christian? Does that make sense? But if I am so in love with the Lord that every place I go, I say, God, I am yours. I'm surrendered. Make me the evidence you desire. It will be verbal, true, but it will also be lived out. It will be the smile and the patience in a moment others might not have. It will be an open Bible. It will be a prayer life. Because every bit of your life is supposed to be evidence. Wouldn't that be cool if tonight... God did that in each of our lives. Because I feel like, here's this thing. Wandrew has a job. And as he does his job, he may, he's, let's just say, let's, let's say he's in a cubicle for four hours. In those four hours, he's not able to speak with anyone per se. And he thinks, there's no option. I, have, I haven't been able to speak verbally to anyone today. But can he still be evidence? Sure. 
and the joy in the job he does, the Bible says to do everything that we do heartily as unto the Lord and in the name of Jesus. And he does it well. He does it right. He does it joyfully. He's got a song in his heart. And that song is a praise to the living God. If that's the state he dwells in in those four hours, and then he bumps into someone at the water cooler, he may be much quicker to share Jesus because he's already busy being evidence. Do you get that? And what if what we prayed tonight, when we're done tonight, is, Lord, make me the evidence you desire for me to be. Now, there are guys, and by the way, if that's the case, I can't criticize another guy for being the evidence he's been called to be. Could God call a guy to stand and shout on a street corner? Yes, he could. And I have no right to say, I just, you know, if I could go look at, that's not the way he's built me. So praise God, that guy's doing it. I'm really thankful when guys like that are doing it because to be honest, I'm really not that kind of guy. I tried. I really tried. Just because I felt like I was, you know, pastor, I should do stuff like that, right? We went to where one of the spring break centers was Palm Springs. I had a group of people with me. I stood up on a public bench, had them stand around so other people could gather behind them. They even walked away. But the moment I sat down and after that, I was like, let's go get ice cream. The moment I sat down with ice cream, I was sharing Jesus with the person scooping my ice cream. That's just the way he made me. But I respect the guy that does that. And let's face it, people like that take a lot of heat. Now, I'm not telling you every guy who screams on a street corner is doing it because God told him to. Or even if God did that, they're doing it the way God told them to. But shouldn't we be praying for them? Now, Back in our text, and by the way, I just want to warn you, because one of the things I pray is I pray that God revolutionize us. To me, to be honest, it's revolutionized me, sincerely, to pray to be evidence. Verbal, any chance God wants, but I can't always be verbal because I'm not always in a position where I can be. But I can be evidence 24-7 regardless. Because I am a new creation. And I'm alive where I was spiritually dead. And where I used to just exist, now I'm alive. There's a difference. And I want to live the kind of life that not just when my mouth is open, but when my life is lived, that it's testimony. Does that make sense? Now Jesus sits down with Paul and he says, two, over two years ago, and he says, listen, you're going to Rome because there is in Rome court cases of human hearts. And I've decided to import evidence over there for which I'm going to use you. How cool is that? God has imported evidence to London from New Zealand from several Jamaican places, Nigerian, Cameroonian, from Eastern Europe. He's even brought up people from England, South Africa, Brazil, Portugal, Ireland, Turkey, and even America. 
and in all of these places, and yours if it isn't mentioned, he imported that evidence into this room tonight and into this country. Because God knew as the ultimate judge and as the ultimate lawyer that for the human hearts that are out there, your evidence will make a difference. Now, think about this. There may be 15 exhibits for which the, the jury has to decide to make that decision. For some people, one thing's enough. Bloody knife. For some people, it's not. For some people, it will be all of that evidence added up that any one of those things wouldn't be enough. But because there were all of these, and they may seem insignificant by themselves, but perfect in a line. And you may think, I'm not that kind of evidence, or that kind of evidence, or that kind of evidence, but you are in the place where God's put you on exhibit to be part of the evidence for which we all get to be part of that evidence. Do you get that? So stop freaking out. Surrender. Delight yourself in the Lord. And in delighting yourself in the Lord, you're going to find yourself being that evidence. Does that make sense? Here's the irony. You could be so busy trying to, quote-unquote, witness that you don't delight in the Lord anymore because you're hating yourself and you feel like he's your boss and you're going to tell him you didn't get the job done. But when I delight in the Lord, I stop fearing man, which is what he wants. I stop fearing what the society is thinking because I'm in love. And if you've learned, when you're in love, you really don't care who makes fun of you for it as long as who you're in love with is worth it. And there really is nobody more worth it than your king. Are you with me on this? A bit of a tangent, but can I just dare say, I am confident that's what the Lord wanted as a word for us tonight. But beyond that, let's walk through our text. In our text now, Jesus two plus years ago said, you're going to testify for me in Jerusalem. I'm sorry, as you have, you must then bear witness, be the evidence. Bear witness, not, in other words, carry that witness at Rome. Now here we are and you're in a storm. If I could call this anything, if we can make it through the whole thing, it's called an anatomy of a rescue. That's what we have here. Losing the ship. We are in the middle of a storm and everybody thinks they're not going to make it through it. We're not going to make it through it because we're about to hit a financial crash. All of this information couldn't possibly sustain. North Korea is enriching uranium. Iran is already ready. Strange little earthquakes are taking place underground. Wonder what that is. 
And people are ready to jump out the windows for so many things and they'll say, we're never going to make it out of this one. But the worst part isn't that. The worst part is when you're in a trial. Because some of that stuff may affect you, but you still kind of know the worst thing happened, I could go to heaven. But when you get to things where you just, you get so caught in the storm where you can't see on the other side of the storm, all you see is everything's blowing, everything's shifting, which means nothing seems stable, everything's changing, and you feel really uncomfortable, you feel real awkward at best, and you're trying to save face. You go, God, just show me any form of sense out of this. An angel comes to Paul and he says, look at verse 24 with me. Don't be afraid. Okay, this is a no-brainer. Why would an angel tell you not to be afraid? Because you're afraid. Yeah, that was a difficult one, right? Listen, this angel, somewhere down the line, God, in his, in his loving fatherly care, saw you freaking out. And he says, I, I'm going to send someone there. Now, sometimes he'll just send his son like two years ago, but let's be honest. Two years ago, Paul was inches away from death because people were trying to kill him. Had they succeeded, he would have seen Jesus face to face. It would have been done. I wonder when Jesus showed up if he wondered, did I die? But this isn't as bad. He's just been waiting. But it is as bad in the sense that he feels he's in a storm. He feels like he may never make it through. And so God sends a messenger. And the messenger's first thing is, hey, um, stop freaking out. Stop stressing. Now, if you know that stressing is a sin, then you can stress about the fact that you're stressing because it's a sin. It's kind of a bad cycle, isn't it? And it would be really cruel if I or any one of us, as a messenger of God, now I'm not saying I'm a cherub or a seraph, but I am as you are one of God's messengers. If we are evidence, we are messengers. We give a message with it. Every choice we make, every word we say, every place we go, will one way or another testify. Now, now with that, the angel doesn't just say, Katya, stop freaking out. The second thing he says is, you're going to have to bear witness in Rome. In other words, can I just say what this messenger did is what we should do too. And that is, hey bro, I know things are tough, but stop freaking out. Let me tell you why. Because I want to remind you of God's promise. Isn't that what he's doing? God two years ago had given that promise that he would come. And so what the angel does is he says, hey, don't forget the promise. Because in a moment like this, when everything's really crazy, it really is easy to forget, isn't it? You know, a guy has a problem. He has a problem with lust. And all of a sudden, he finds himself in some kind of bondage in it. And then with that, the police are involved. And there he is, and they're going to bang down the door. He's freaking out over the whole thing, and he can't see that Jesus still is going to deliver him from it because he promised he would, because at that moment, there are too many circumstances that keep him from thinking straight. Guy had a problem with, a, with an addiction. 
to some form of drug or alcohol, which is a drug. He feels like he's done well for a while, and then all of a sudden it was a little sip, and then it was a little sip. It was a little mouthwash, and he realized that's got alcohol in it. And the next thing you know, he's drinking all kinds of stuff. He's binging, and then he's, like, and then he's fighting people, and he's doing ridiculous things, and he can't think straight for the moment to remember that Jesus says, look it, this is going to be over one day. And a messenger comes and says, stop freaking out. And you go, what? Shut up. And then he goes, no, 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 listen. Remember the promise. That's what the angel does here. For which then Paul steps on it. God bless you. And I mean that word for word. Now follow me on this. He says, no, look, at, here's the beauty in it. The storm that you're going through, you're not going through alone. Does anyone remember how many people are on this ship? Excellent, 276 people. And this is what the angel also says. Indeed, please hear me, God has granted you all those who sail with you. That's right there in verse 24. Do you see it? Do you see it there? No, no listen. There is this British researcher, for what it's worth, and this particular British researcher, who, by the way, is, is the head of an experimental psychology at Oxford, has come up with a particular kind of like a number of the amount of people that he believes you can actually sustain a relationship with. The amount of people, by the way, that you can kind of have some form of, any form of relative relationship with that's somewhat sustainable. The man's name, for what it's worth, is Robin Dunbar. I don't know how many of you have ever heard of him or have his t-shirt. He's the head of the Social and Evolutionary Neuroscience Research Group in the Department of Experimental Psychology at the University of Oxford. And like most scientists, he named it after himself, Dunbar's Number. And what Dunbar's Number is, in his opinion at the very maximum is 150 people. What that means is, is that he is convinced that you could not have, even with Facebook and Twitter and all the other things, more than 150 relationships that you somehow can sustain. The reason I say that is, is that Paul, from what I can tell, stepped onto a ship with probably a small handful of people he knew. And all of a sudden, he has been responsible for 276 people, including himself. And you know what it took for him to be there? It took a storm where everyone thought they weren't going to make it through. Now, there are some people in our fellowship, as we're aware of, that are suffering from some very life-threatening illnesses that have been put in positions that are very, very difficult. And can I just say, that it's at moments like that when you're going, God, I just want to have, just give me something that says this makes a bit of sense, that you're going to do something with this still. Give me some hope in the middle of this. And the Lord says, David, the Lord has granted you all who are on this trip with you, as frightened as they are. Before we planted our church in the central coast of California, and you can ask my brother about this. He knows even better than I. I interned for three years 
in essence, as a pastor, a college pastor at my brother's church. He's my pastor. You'll get to meet. There was a pastor there, one of the assistants, named Barry Filer. Barry Filer was a good-looking, suave, intelligent, athletic man who just did not get me from the beginning. He, and his answer, honestly, he'll tell me, he would tell me later is, nobody loves Jesus that much all the time. And for over a year and then some, he was like kind of peeking around the corners just to kind of make sure everything kind of lined up. He was the most valuable player in one of our games that we played. And then he was diagnosed. He was diagnosed with leukemia. Now, Barry was the kind of person everyone kind of knew a little bit about. Barry was, <laughs> Barry changed rather quickly. He was told he could never have children. And Barry turned into Mr. Cornball. Now, in America, a person who's kind of cornball means that everything they do is kind of a little corny. It's like a little, it doesn't have to be the most suave thing anymore. So he had a son. His wife got pregnant. And he named him, I kid you not, Maximilian Blessings. That was his first and middle name. Maximilian Blessings Filer, or Max for short. And Barry became simple in his faith. Barry became this amazing man of God. Oh, he may have been a great guy before this. I talked to my brother because I never knew the earlier Barry. And he said, oh, he was proud. <laughs> so he certainly wasn't when I got to know him. Barry got to the point where he actually took a Sunday morning Right in the middle of it, he goes, excuse me. He was gone for a couple of minutes, and he comes back and he says, sorry, sometimes you just have to throw up. See, the chemotherapy was doing that to him. I believe it was a Thursday. Barry was leading a study at his house with the IV attached into his arm and died the next day. Barry's stomach started to really expand because of a lot of the things he was going through. One night he went, he couldn't sleep because of the medication, stood on the front of his own house, in his own front lawn. And three men jumped out. Two of them started beating on him. His wife runs outside and says, please, you'll kill him, you'll kill him, you'll kill him. They were sheriffs. They were marshals. Because there was a stolen car radio ring that was going on and they thought that he was one of them. They had no idea. Barry kind of knew this was it. He was not going to recover from this. This was towards the end of his life, obviously. Those men, as you might imagine, came in, flowers, kind remarks, begging not to be sued. And Barry on his deathbed looks at him and says, if Jesus could forgive me for all that I've ever gone through and done to him, how can I not forgive you? He would tell these gals who would come in, the nurses, he'd say, I just want you to know, you remind me of Jesus. And they'd be like, what? And he goes, yeah, because every day you come in and you take out the rubbish. And Jesus takes the rubbish out of my life. That's what I mean by cornball. At Barry Filer's funeral, it was well over a thousand people. 
and roughly 276 medical professionals testified of how they gave their life to Jesus Christ because of this guy who was dying from cancer, but he refused to let it get on top of him. And the Lord, and if you were to ask Barry the day or the moment before he died, Barry, is this worth it? He'd say, yeah. Here we go. Yeah. <laughs> There's a song we've sung before called Break My Heart. My Lord, I want to be just like Jesus Christ because I know that's the best that I can be. He wrote that song. And it's, a, it's one of those songs you're scared to sing sometimes. It's like, break my heart, bend my knees. And I'm thinking, wow, this is really, I'm asking for it on a song like that. But the only reason I say that is, look, at in one of those moments when things really do hit, you know, it's like nobody would volunteer to lose a child. No one would volunteer to, to, to just wind up bankrupt, to be mugged to be assaulted. Some of those things destroy lives. They destroy marriages. The death of a child often is enough to destroy the majority of marriages in, our, in this country and in America. And people look at a moment like that. Now this is what it says, by the way, for what it's worth in Second Corinthians. It says in chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God, please listen carefully, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. Please don't miss this. It does not say that we are able to comfort someone who's gone through the same problem. Because the issue is not the circumstance. The issue is whether we've really found comfort. And if we have Stop disqualifying yourself because you haven't experienced their need for comfort. The issue is more who is the comfort. Does that make sense? How does a pastor who is a man seek to comfort a girl who has been raped? And I'm, forgive me for being that brash. And most people, and by the way, it doesn't just have to be a man. You could be a girl and say, I couldn't minister to her because I've not experienced that. The issue really isn't that. Although I agree with you, there are places where we can feel like we have some form of unity because we've gone through the same kind of storm. But never disqualify yourself if you've received comfort. That is part of your docket of evidence. Because let's be honest, unbelievers aren't the only one who need evidence. Don't we? When you've fallen because you thought you'd never do it again. And someone says, I haven't experienced that challenge, but I know what it's like to deal with bondage. And 
can I just remind you of God's promise? He's faithful. And what he began as a good work, he will be faithful to complete it. He will be. Look at the church he stuck you in, the, the fellowship. As eclectic, we sit here on a cold night ready to build snowmen with our ice, with our tea. And we sit here and we get into the Word for an hour. Is that crazy? But he's meeting me. I hope he, I'm sure he is you as well. Verse 25. Therefore, take heart, men, for I believe that it will be just as it was told me. However, we must run aground on a certain island. What Paul says is, look at you are going to be rescued, but you're going to need to lose the ship. Now, I don't know what your ship is, but I guarantee you there's going to be dignity in that. There's going to be some things that you are comfortable with, your familiarity, because for most of the, for the sailors who are going to try to escape, this is their workplace, this is their liveliness, this is a bit of their identity. It's certainly their comfort zone. And it's like, look at the Lord is going to rescue you, but He's not going to rescue you and the ship. He's going to rescue you. And the ship is, strangely enough, in its destruction, is going to be part of your saving. Don't go down with the ship. Let the ship go down and let God save you because of it. You're like, you know what? It's like, how many times can a guy talk about, how many guys have you ever heard talk about how God has carried them through a lust problem because guys are too proud to share that because it's such a vulnerable area? How many girls have actually stood up and testified about problems in self-image? Where they've been cutting or controlled the sort of, of being anorexic or bulimic or whatever. They don't want to share that stuff. Let's be honest. It's very intimate. It's very humbling. But if your ship goes down, it's part of your evidence. It's part of what, you, what God wants to put you in situations for. We just don't want to share it because, to be honest, we tell people God can deliver you from anything and everything, but we really don't want to share what that could be in our, or what it has been in our life sometimes because we really don't want, we kind of figure people won't see us the same. So you're going to need to lose the ship. Now, when the 14th, on the 14th night had come, verse 27. Two weeks now, as we were driven up and down the Adriatic Sea. And let's go ahead and would you turn for a moment, thank you, Dilek, to the, the map. Because we're being driven up and down the Adriatic Sea here. Now, the Adriatic Sea today is not only the Adriatic as we would know it, but it's also the Ionic. Now, that may not mean much to you. But the question is whether or not you can find Malta, because that's where they're going to wind up. So clearly, they have to be relatively near there. Now, I'm fairly confident that Francis could find it, and the reason is he's from there. But that doesn't mean he can find it. I shouldn't give him that much. Yeah. So, and here's the here. I'll just do it. This. See, Francis is going to make sure that you know. He's going to make sure you know. I know where it is. Here we go. Now, here's the idea. We've, um, remember, here is Crete, here is Cyprus, and there's Malta. Now, I want to remind you, does anyone know where Rome is? Okay. Now, if it's there, think about this. 
this isn't a really good place to be. This is where they're going to wind up. Does anyone know what this cute little thing is? Yeah, remember that, because that's where I'm going to be next week. Really suffering. I was thinking about praying for you guys. Um, now, so they're being tossed up and down this whole area here. And can I just say, that's a really, really big area. And so they're just helplessly in the washing machine. That's the idea. And it says, Then the fourteenth night we were driven up and down the Adriatic Sea about midnight. That's not a great time to start sensing something. It says, notice in verse 27, the sailors sensed. This is not a, you know, this is one of those moments where a sailor kind of goes, I, I think I have a feeling here that we're getting near land. And like, really? Well, well, let's do something about it. Let's, let's see whether your feeling is really anything. And it says that they, and by the way, you're probably aware of the fact, as long as we can land safely on the land, that's the best possible place you want to be at this moment. I mean, you've been tossed around the sea. Getting out of the washing machine would be a lovely idea. So it says, we took soundings, found it to be about 20 fathoms. A fathom for what's worth is roughly two meters. To give you an idea, roughly six feet. By the way, marking the distance between the ship and that ground is marking the twain. The difference between. For those of you who are familiar with an American literary figure, he named himself after that, Mark Twain. That's where that came from. So with that in mind, we came in and it says we found it to be 20 fathoms. How far is 20 fathoms then in meters? Excellent. That's good because it's just twice as much. So it's 40 meters. When we got a little further, we took soundings and found it to be about 15 fathoms. How much is that? 30. What does that tell you? We're getting closer to land. We were 40 meters, now we're 30, and that's not so good if you're going really fast. Especially when Paul has already told you, the ship's going down. Now, with that, you're probably aware of the fact that a very good portion of the shipwrecks that we have out there, more than half of them, actually are within a mile of a coast. Because what you're running, you have to run into something. I mean, even Titanic hit something before it went down. Now, with that, it says, fearing lest we should run aground on the rocks, we dropped four, four anchors from the stern and prayed for the day to come. Here's part of our rescue, by the way. Part of the rescue is you have to go to the things that are solid and pray for light. So, here, by the way, here's an easy way to remember where the stern is. Could you give us, um, if you would, please, Delect, the picture of the um, diagram of the ship? And obviously, we won't get through the whole text, but we're going to try here. Um, and the picture of the ship... There you go. The stern is the rear. Prow is the front. Think of being a parent. Don't let me get stern on your rear. That's the idea. Now you won't forget it. So, the stern's the rear of the ship. And the prow was the front. Now notice what it says. We dropped four anchors. And while we're doing that, if you would prepare for those other pictures of what they discovered, the archaeologists, about the anchors. Thank you, Delight. It says, fearing lest we should run aground, we dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And let me just say, and you're in the middle of the storm, the Lord says, I'm going to give you lives in the middle of this. People are going to be brought into your life for you to be the evidence I desire for you to be. And so you go, what do I do? I freak out, I'm going to just pray and get esoteric. And God says, no, get into the four anchors. Now, scripturally, can I just dare say, get into the Gospels. They're four, they're immovable, they're going to solid you up. And then it says, and they prayed for morning. What did they pray for? They prayed for daylight. So what I'm doing, in the middle of a storm, I'm getting back to the Gospels. I don't want to, the easy thing would be to read the Psalms, because David's like, oh, life is rough, and I'm just, my life is within inches, and oh. But it's like reading the Gospels, I'm reminded of Jesus. 
who endured hard, more hardship than I ever will here on earth. And at that point, I'm praying, God, I pray for light. As I read this, give me light. And if it's the case, go ahead. Can you go to those? Um, this is interesting. Notice this, by the way, because two of those four anchors, by the way, go ahead and flip to the next one and the other, if you would. Um, by the way, you probably know who that guy is. Um, and then this, this one, by the way, actually has written on it, and normally they don't, Isis and Serapi, which, by the way, is Egyptian and Greek for, um, for God, Egyptian, Isis. Uh, they, and so the idea about this way is they found two of these anchors for what it's worth exactly where this situation was taking place. Of course, that would make sense, and you'll see why in a moment. So it says this, fearing lest we should run aground, we dropped four anchors, we prayed for day. Verse 30, the sailors seeking to escape from the ship when they had let down the skiff into the sea under the pretense of putting on the, the anchors from the prow. Where is the prow on the boat? The front. Excellent. Paul said to the centurion, unless these men stay on the ship, you can't be saved. Notice, here's my question, who's trying to escape? The sailors, not the prisoners, not the workers. The sailors are trying to get out. They're like, we're near land. I could get on that boat and row there. And can I just say, part of what is necessary in a rescue is to stay together. The natural thing when you're actually in a storm is you want to get away from fellowship. You want to get away and you just want to kind of just, I want to suffer and all of that. And God goes, no, this is not the time. If I'm giving you lives to be testimony, you need to be somewhere where those lives are. And you're like, but I'm going to be suffering. People don't need to see that. And it's like, look it, let me be your joy in that storm so that when people, the people, what they're going to know is the storm. What they're looking for is the joy. Be that joy. And all of a sudden, it's like, look at, I'm, look, I'm looking for an escape route out of this thing at this point. It, you know, maybe I'm, I'm getting a little bit of hope because land looks like it's coming. A little bit of hope. I'm going to try to jump out of this. He goes, no, no, no. Stay together because this is about saving everyone. This isn't just about saving you. This is about saving almost 300 people. And if that's going to be the case, then don't jump ship. Don't jump ship yet. Centurion says, unless that's the case, so what do they do? They cut, the, they cut the ropes from, of the skiff and let it fall off. Again, what's the skiff? The little lifeboat. As day was about to dawn, verse 33, Paul implored them to take food. Today is the 14th day you've waited and gone without food. What, have any of you ever gone two weeks without food? Can I just dare say, none of you look like you have, nor I. Um, I don't know if I've ever gone 14 hours without food, without making it by choice. And you've eaten nothing. Verse 34, Therefore I urge you, take nourishment, for this is your survival, since not a hair will fall from the head of any of you. Oh, I wish this was promise was given to me. <laughs> yeah, it hasn't been, unfortunately. I'd love for the Lord to say, not a hair from your head will fall from you. He might say, not a hair from your head will remain on you. But he says, no, no please don't miss this, because we actually should be able to close this up in a couple of minutes. Look at verse 35. Please don't underestimate this verse. When he had said these things, he took bread, gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. There is something about a guy that says, look at a messenger spoke to me and this angel said to me, don't worry, this thing's going to work out. Everyone's going to be saved. And because everyone's going to be saved, I believe him. That's what Paul's saying. Now you've said something like that, I bet. You're going, I believe that. 
Sunday next goes, you guys, we need to eat because you're going to need this. The ship, remember, he also said the ship's going to be lost, which means one way or another, there's going to require some physical effort for you to get to land. It's not like it's going to be lost. You're going to float there. Chances are you're going to have to swim there. You're going to need a little bit of strength. You guys need to eat, right? Here's the problem. Paul hasn't eaten in 14 days either. And you're the one person on the... uh, Listen, listen, listen. You're the one person on the ship most convinced what that angel said to you. Let's be honest. And if you're most convinced, most hopeful, then you should be the first one to eat. And that's what Paul does. And a moment like that, and you're like, look at you guys, this is what needs to happen. Can you imagine how powerful it was when Paul spoke about having contentedness to the Philippians when he was in prison, currently in the Mamertine prison in Rome. It means a whole lot more than Paul saying, you need to be content, and he's sunbathing in Cyprus. Because it's important to recognize, or whatever the case would be, that there's something about being in the suffering that's like, look at you guys, I'm still going to initiate the solution. I want to live it out. And you look and you go, hey, you guys need to pray. The one thing they didn't need to do at this moment was fast. Well, anyways, so they've been doing that for two weeks. And so it says then, Paul took it and he ate in front of them. He was the example. Closing this up, it says then there were about 276 people in all. So when they'd eaten enough, they lightened the ship and threw out all the wheat into the sea, which means if they were to jump ship, it would be death by porridge. Think about it. All right, so... Verse 39, when it was day, they didn't recognize the land, but they observed a bay with a beach under which they planned to run the ship if possible. Who wouldn't want to run it onto sand? When they let the anchors go, and that's how we know that they were still there. Meanwhile, loosening the rudder ropes, they hoisted the mainsail into the wind and made for shore. But striking a place where the two seas met, they ran the ship aground, and the prow stuck fast. What's the prow again? Front of, the, front of the ship. And it remained immovable. Verse 41, it says, But the stern, and what's that? The back of the Stern's the back, was being broken up by the violence of the waves. Listen, in the midst of the rescue, and here's where it becomes profound, and this is where it starts to close up. You are in the middle of two currents. That's the problem. There's a current that's taking you to shore, there's a current that's dragging you to sea. And in that, the front part is stuck. The part of you that's right in the front of this, there is a resistance that says you're not getting any farther. But there's a part behind you that's pushing you at the same time. And you're like, there is something wrong here. And as we walk with Christ, you are stuck in between two currents, especially if you're busy saving the ship. Saying, I've got my rights. I'm going to demand of God. This is who I am. God's just going to have to deal with it. God says, no, 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 you're losing that ship. Don't tell me about how God has to accept your terms for him to be your Savior and Lord. That doesn't work. So what happens? The front stuck. The back's getting beaten but pushed. Finally, it says, 42, the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest anyone would swim and escape. 
But the centurion, wanting to save Paul, kept them from their purpose and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard. Now it's time to go overboard. When you recognize that two currents are there, and one of them is stopping you from going to where you're supposed to be, and one of them is pushing you because the Spirit of God is pushing you, and your flesh says no. The Spirit of God's pushing you, and, and, and the Word of God's pushing you, and the world says no. And at that point, the world says, mellow out, stay on the ship, stop getting crazy. Now it's time to go overboard. But can I just encourage you, go overboard with me. I'm not asking you to go overboard alone. I'm asking you to go overboard. Can we be the, the, the church of the overboard? Oh, you're overboard on that Jesus thing. Yeah, good. I want to be. There's nobody in the world that won't recognize that sooner or later and go, you're overboard. But if you're the evidence God called you to be, overboard's the only logical place to go. Do you get that? I mean, if I actually tell you Jesus is worth everything, <clears throat> but my life and choices reflect 50%, then even my life doesn't testify the words I say. If Jesus really is everything we say he is, then there should be nothing we should be chasing after as hotly. As a matter of fact, we should be, if anything, clean. Things will just kind of get to us as we chase him. And I want to tell you, if Jesus, he is all that. And if he is all that, let him do the rest. Love him. And go overboard with me. So how does this end? The ship is destroyed and we're saved. But there's one thing you might miss. Coming from California, I can't help but notice this in verse 44. It says, and the rest... It says, remember, they should all go overboard, some should swim. And the rest, some on boards and some on parts of the ship. So it was that they escaped safely to land did you know that surfing's in Scripture? It's right there. Some made it to land on boards. So, you know, it's right there. But more importantly, <laughs> sorry, Dash, that's for you, man. It was, if the ship, if you didn't let go of the ship, you'd have never gotten to where God wanted you. Did you get that? You'd be busy trying to pull the ship together instead of riding on that chunk to land. And maybe that's you today. Maybe today what you really think is, you know, I don't want people to see that God's delivered me from all those things. And, and let's face it, in this culture, we don't air our laundry here. Well, unless you invite people over. But, but, you know, naturally, we don't let people know. And some people, you know, you want to be wise. You don't want to go, hi, by the way, I used to shoot people for a living. And, you know, ah, and they run with their, kill, with their children. But there's something about being ready, being evidence. That if we really are evidence, listen, listen, you're not the lawyer. You're the evidence. You're not the lawyer. You're the evidence. The lawyer, Jesus Christ, picks you up and says, now it's time to display you. Look carefully. This is the moment. This is the context. Here it is. And I'm busy going, wow, I need to position myself. And maybe the, God made you that way. And, you know, but let's be honest, the vast majority of us, 
are so busy trying to be the lawyer, we're not even being the evidence anymore. What if tonight we committed to holding each other accountable, to praying to be evidence 24-7, all the time? I want to be evidence to Andrew of a changed man. And I can do that without having him to have to walk through my past. The fruit of the Spirit manifest in me should be evidence. I want to be evidence to Dash, to Bjorn, to Rodrigue. And you know what's beautiful is I can be evidence whether I speak French to him or not. He's going to see it in more than what I say, but he will see it including what I say. You are required to testify But the bottom line is, a bloody knife will testify by being a bloody knife. If you were accused of destroying every plant on the the earth, and I brought in a budding plant, please hear me, and I brought in a budding plant, the case is closed. And there are people that genuinely believe that England is a wilderness, a barren, hard-soiled wilderness. And friends, can I present to the jury your forest? Because you are evidence of that. As we pray, I want to thank Jesus for dying on the cross for me. Because without it, I'm the only evidence I am is of a corpse. I want to thank Him for rising again to give me new life. And then I want to pray for you and for me that we be evidence in the storm, in the rescue, that will initiate when no one else is eating weed. We have cheer when no one else is cheer. We have confidence and courage when everyone else is freaking out. Let's face it, that's got to be socially unacceptable but also perfectly right. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, I want to thank you so much for this beautiful text. I don't doubt for a second your Holy Spirit's here working on us. I don't doubt for a second you're ministering. I don't doubt for a second you've spoken. And Lord, there are people I know right now in this room, I don't know personally as regards to this person probably, but you know, Lord, that there are people right now stuck in those currents. Man, that front's getting hit by one wave, but the back's getting hit by another. And and that they're so busy trying to keep the the ship together because they're trying to make sure that people think of them as something so much more that, that, God, we're not letting you carry us to safety. God, tonight we want to surrender our ships to you. Our entire life, our identity, our dreams, our ambitions, how we view ourselves, our priorities, every bit of it. But I'll be honest, we also don't want to surrender our ships to you. We'd rather, we'd rather the world know, if we're honest, that we were like 90% there and you gave us that last boost instead of we were totally helpless and you saved us. But that's the message we preach. May that now be the evidence we give. Jesus, I thank you that you died for me when I hated you. That you died for me when I was a sinner. 
that you died for me and called me by name and loved me and, and wanted me when I didn't want you. You took all of that horrible torture. You took it because you wanted me. And you rose again. Just as your scripture promised, you died for my sins according to scripture. And on the third day rose again according to scripture. And I just pray tonight that you would remove from us the burden that isn't ours of trying to be the lawyer. And you would remind us the evidence you call us to be. The evidence that we could delight in you, that we could be new creations, that we could be hopeful though we are not perfect in practice. We're being made new and better with every breath. I pray you would make us witnesses, evidence to each other, to our families, to our neighborhoods, to our workplaces, to our schools, to the world around us. But can I just humbly ask, Lord, you'd start by making us evidence even to ourselves. Because if we're honest, sometimes we forget even what you've done in our own lives. I pray, Lord, tonight that you begin the revolution right now. Jesus, with you as our sacrifice, with you as our Lord, risen Lord, with you as our lawyer, our defense attorney, as First John 2 makes clear, and we as your evidence. We're in your hands now. Whatever storm you choose to take us through, make us aware of the lives you're putting in our care in the midst of that. And for those in storms around us, make us that messenger the messenger that will remind others in love of the promises you've given, that we don't lose hope, we take courage, and we release ourselves from that fear, surrender ourselves to your hope, and embrace it greatly. So here we are, we're yours. Change this world. We pray for the revolution of England. We pray you would use us. In Jesus' name.